listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi everyone, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Brian Fucordia. Uh, and Brian is one of our new co-hosts this year. Brian, tell everyone just a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, so my name's Brian and I currently um, teaching Hebrew Bible Old Testament at Marlow Theological College in Samoa. Uh, currently, I'm on uh, Darawal country uh, here in Campbelltown in New South Wales. Um, we're on a break with family, so spending a bit of time here for uh, recuperate before I start the academic year, um, beginning in Feb. Um, but yeah, it's my first year back uh, lecturing there, and I'm also in the junk lecture at Trinity and doing some work also for Pilgrim um, at the University of Divinity and Whitney. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you're, yeah. you're a busy man, but we um we really <laughs> appreciate you adding this to your many many things you do because um yeah. You've been a guest before and it's really great to have you on here. So oh, It's great to be back. Brian and I, we're both on, um, we're at distance today, so if we hope the sound will be okay, but if it's a little patchy in places, it's because we're doing this over the internet. Uh, we're going to be discussing the readings for Epiphany 5 uh, with a particular focus on Isaiah 58, 1 to 9, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 12, or 1 to 16, the um, lectionary gives us an option, and Matthew 5, 13 to 20. So we're going to start with Isaiah 58, Brian. Um, locate us. What's going on here? What do you notice? What do we need to know about this text? Um, so with the with 50, Isaiah 58, it's, um, it's part of the, uh, you know, the section that scholars like to uh, call Isaiah 3 or um, or Isaiah 2, depending on how they want to split the, um, this text. But, um, you know, for to, to be quite, um, you know, specific, we're, we're talking about the period um, of the Persian era when the, the Persians uh, were ruling uh, this part of the world. And they're, they're in power, so um, they are the colonial force at this time. Yep. Um, so the responses um, and voices that we hear um, in this text in, in Isaiah 58 um, are very much speaking uh, towards this uh, great power. Um, and so we have the issue of fasting um, and mm. the type of fasting that, that, is, um, that is appropriate um, at this time. And there's been a complaint um, raised that they've been fasting, you know, uh, for for, for, for the purpose of um, gaining God's favour um, during this uh, very trouble, troublesome time, um, but they're not getting the response that they're looking for. You know, God's yeah. not responding. God's not giving the favour. Um, so they want to know what's wrong, what's, what exactly yeah. is the, the issue with their fasting. I mean, they, they seem to be doing it right on face value, um, but they're not getting um, the, the, you know, the, the fruits of their labour, uh, so to speak. So... Um, this is sort of what's happening here, yeah. um, and 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 hence um, why we've got the response from the prophets um, as to the exact problem, um, and it all comes down to, um, you know, the behaviour that they're showing, the correct attitude, mindset um, in their fasting that seems to be incorrect um, and doesn't reflect the actual attitude required 
um, for fasting um, at a time like this. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. It's a it's a it's a hard reading to read in some ways because you've got to be attentive to the voices. I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. You know, like, so the question in verse three is the question from the people, like, you know, do you not see? I mean, that's a, it's almost a classic um, question we get or complaint in the Bible that, you know, God is absent, right? The, mm. the implied part of that is God is absent, God is silent, God, yeah. we're, we're doing the right thing and reaching out to God, and yet we're not seeing any response. So God seems yeah. either absent or silent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's explore a bit more. I found this, um, well, one thing I think I want to say, and, you know, you, you can correct me as a Hebrew Bible scholar, but I feel like there have been interpretations of this that have wanted to say this is the prophets rejecting cultic rituals like fasting and saying they don't matter. But I think there's probably something more nuanced going on here. It's not saying fasting is bad, mm. but they're fasting in the wrong kinds of ways. I think you use the word attitude. Yeah. Um, can we explore a bit more what what the right attitude is? Do we get hints in the text about what's wrong with their attitude and what the solution should be? Yeah, that, that's um, that's a great question, and um, that certainly opens up what um, the prophet is trying to uh, negotiate here. Um, and and you're right; it's it's not the act of fasting itself that's the problem. Yeah. Um, but it's the it's the mindset, it's the focus. Um, mm-hmm. It's the agenda behind the fasting um, because, you know, if you read other texts such as um, Zechariah who, uh, you know, also speak about this, in, this improper fasting, um, fasting is meant to be a, a response um, uh, of remorse, um, of penitence, mm. you know, seeking God's favour. Um, yep. and, and it normally occurs at a time when, you know, when the nation um, is suffering, they're in they're in, uh, you know, they're in they're in a state of chaos, um, and they're looking to their God for for a response. Um, so, fasting is necessary then, mm. if, we, if we think along those terms. But what's happened is that a lot of this fasting is self-centered, um, it's egotistic, um, yep. and therefore there is no concern for the other, um, the marginalized yeah. other. The victim, the victimized, um, those in the margins. So, the, the content of justice and righteousness um, is something that needs to be spelled out here by the yes. prophet, because that's the backbone of their fasting, and this is what's this is what's required um, of of the nation to in, in their fasting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely what you're saying. It's not so much the fasting; it's the the content and yeah. the agenda behind the fasting. Yeah, and you can see that flip, I think, around verse 7 or maybe yes. even a, a bit before, right, that, you know, if, if the fasting is not to um, share your bread with the hungry, you know, clothe the naked, you know, if it's not, there's something about it, um, the inward versus the outward, I think, mm. that, right? Mm. Like, and I mean, it raises questions for me in terms of contemporary Christian practices, spiritual yeah. practices, because, you know, there there are times we need to do the internal work and we need to, mm. there's something about spiritual practices that are about, you know, ourselves and sorting ourselves out. But there seems to be something in what the prophet's saying here, that if this is just about yourself or yourself and God, you're missing the bigger picture, picture which is you you do this right. for others. Like it's, That's got, right. it's got to have an outward focus and a justice right. focus, right? Yes, yes. Um, 
I, I wondered too, um, there's, we get these sort of almost if then towards the end of the passage, like if, if you do this right kind of fast, then in verse eight, your light mm. will break forth, then your healing will come, then you shall call and God will answer. How do we read things like that? I mean, is it a bit transactional? It felt a bit mm. like if you do the right things, then I, God, will appear, but you're not doing the right things, so I'm staying away. Kind of like, yeah, it does feel that way. And um, that part of the reading seemed a bit problematic for me. Yeah, um, me especially, especially um, as a person who, who who likes to think they specialise in uh, sceptical wisdom. Yeah. Um, where we ask those hard questions and, you know, we're not expecting easy answers. Mm. Um, I think that the, the whole gist of it all is the ability to ask hard questions when we're talking about um, the reality of our world. Mm. Um, because more often than not, we always get the conventional preaching and the conventional teaching who seem to always try to find an answer and that every problem should um, come to an answer that mm. obviously would come from the person that's preaching. Um, but in this situation, um, you know, I want to recall that, you know, the, the, the attitudes of the sceptical wisdom writers, um, such as Ecclesiastes and Job, mm -hmm. um, who, who, who are all about asking those hard questions and for the, for the purpose of being able to express the frustrations that we have with the world the, the you know the discontent that we have um, yeah. and if and, and that in that asking it's okay if there's no answer yes it's okay it's okay if there's no answer to the question so um, I feel a bit let down in a way being a skeptical <laughs> wisdom person after after the people have had, had gone into the trouble of asking these really hard questions yeah. and then you know the prophet just comes back and says well if you do this then this will happen but we know in reality that, you know, it's, the world isn't, um, you know, conventional like that all the time. No. Um, you know, you're going to, you're going to, there's, there's many um, examples of injustices um, and, 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 every, and bad stuff that happened in the world today that doesn't always have that happy ending. So, yeah, I, I get what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, you're naming my discomfort really well because I, I think there's layers to this. It's, it, these sorts of texts give us permission to ask right. the kind of where are you, God? Why do you not see? Mm. Um, which I think is really important. Uh, yeah. But there's there's a layer of which, you know, the people think they're doing the right thing. They might yeah. be doing it out of their best sense of what's right, but mm. they're still not getting it right. And then even yeah. if they do it when it's right, well, then there's this sort of promise mm. of of some kind of blessing. Yeah. And as, as you say, we know that that doesn't always work out, right? Because we've got mm. these other biblical voices that talk about you can be really righteous like Job and it's mm. still not going to, you know, that doesn't equal yeah. some of the things we might equate with happiness and health and all of that. Um, right. Yeah, so there's complexity here. I wondered, you know, for people preaching this text, if people wanted to deep dive into it, I wondered about thinking about this text in terms of Lent coming up in a few weeks as yeah. a way to reflect on, you know, different churches have different spiritual traditions about fasting and Lent or other things yes. they give up. I've mm. long thought that giving up something if I'm not doing something with it is a bit of a useless spiritual practice, at least for me. <laughs> like, right, so if I'm right. going to give up cake or give up alcohol or something, I should actually be giving that money to someone or I should be 
adding, like it's not just about the denial, it's also about what you're doing for others, mm. um, is one potential theme I thought of. Equally, there's a way of thinking with this passage about how our spiritual practices feed our justice practices because we often separate mm. those in the Christian traditions. But I don't know if you have any other thoughts before we move on to the New Testament about what you'd preach out of this kind of story. Um, yeah, it's, I think, just probably a, a, some food for thought. Um, going back to, I'll probably bring in um, the Psalm 1 text here for, um, you know, for, for our listeners who, who are not mm-hmm. probably m- most likely not familiar with the Psalm 1 translation, but the word we um, use to translate fasting um, is uh, this is actually the name of a cultural practice, which is sort of the same as fasting, which is called anapongi. Um, and in that word anapongi, there is the word bo, um, and bo is the Samoan word for night um, or the evening. Um, so it refers literally to rituals of the evening. Um, so it's it's quite interesting that the the Samoan translators back in the 1800s decided. Um, this is the word we're going to go with to translate, um, you know, the the ritual of fasting. Yeah. Um, but to give a bit of context, anapongi involves, um, you know, self-denial, um, but it also involves prayer and meditation. Um, and normally what happens when one um, engages in this uh, ritual of anapongi is they remove themselves um, away from the village and they, they isolate Mm. Um, from the rest of the village, and then they sometimes they go into the forest, um, and 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 they have this. Um, it's and and it's interesting that in that self isolation, they actually reconnect with nature, mm. um, because they're in the forest, right? So um, th- there is something there that I think that can help our our listeners um, and also those who are seeking to preach, um, because. When we think of what Jesus does as well, um, mm. Jesus likes to isolate himself every now and then. Um, and it's always into a forest-type space, yep. um, whether it's in the mountain or in the garden or something. Um, but there's, there's that essential connection there with, with land, with the forest, mm. um, that, that, that so perhaps we don't think about when we're, talking, when we're thinking about fasting. Um, but that whole self-denial where you're giving room to the other, in this sense, it's not so much other people, but it's all, but it's environment, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and and in that in that space, you're recognizing that, you know, without the environment, you're virtually nothing. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, There's something I wanted to bring up, um, but there's also that significance of the dark, of the night. Yes. Um, you know, it's a space where. Uh, you know, there's a lot of quiet, there's a lot of mystery. Um, uh, yeah, it, and, and perhaps, um, I mean, some people like to associate darkness with danger and fear yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we're looking at it as a space that's calm, um, you know, a space that's, that, that allows you to reflect and meditate. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I love the nature stuff's really helpful because, it says something about that, you know, the spiritual practice of fasting. However, that's imagined, it is has multiple layers, right? It's not about just mm. not not eating food, but doing everything the same in your everyday life, right? There's something right. about taking us and the reconnection with something beyond ourselves, mm. be it nature, people, whatever. Yeah, mm. that's yeah, lovely. Yeah. 
Shall we move on to yeah. 1 Corinthians? Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion? So the lectionary gives us 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 12, with the possibility of adding 13 to 16. So if this is your key preaching text, you might want to read the whole chapter because it is, you know, worth doing. And we're, of course, continuing here, um, you know, what the last few weeks we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, looking at Christ crucified as this stumbling block, as foolishness to the world, and Paul's been playing on, um, really drawing on Jewish wisdom traditions um, and talking about the wisdom of God differing from the wisdom of humans and sort of being a bit sort of, he's playing with that in lots of ways and he kind of continues here. Here I think making it almost more about him when he starts to talk about uh, I didn't come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom and he means like human wisdom right so he we get Paul's kind of anti-rhetoric he 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 plays a very clever game he's actually rhetorically very clever but he positions himself as I didn't come with worldly wisdom and lofty words and clever speech because I came just with Jesus and with a crucified Jesus and that that for him, um, as we talked about last time with Sean Winter, is so central to the reconfiguring the world. Um, and he, so he'll go on to say, you know, therefore I came and it's the demeanour of a crucified Christ as one who's weak, who's fearful, who's trembling. Um, so literally Paul, will see in his writing, starts to embody this embodied Messiah who's crucified. Um, and... You know, there's so much we could say about this passage. I think one of the one first things I want to say is uh, that Paul here, it, it's a very Jewish way of thinking. He's drawing on an ancient wisdom, so he portrays God's wisdom as something that is decreed before the ages in verse 6. So it's, it's something that precedes any kind of human knowledge. Um, and he also refers to it as secret and hidden, something that gets revealed to us through the spirits. And this language of revealed we talked about this last time too, is this language of apocalypso, something, it's apocalyptic language. So it's something you only know because God has chosen to disclose it, not because we can get there with logic and science. And mm -hmm. So there's a lot here to play with. Um, Brian, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to add on what Paul's up to here. And Yeah, I just, I just find it, um, and, and you know, uh, forgive me because um, I'm not, you're the, you're the New Testament um, expert here. No. Um, but um, it's it's quite funny uh, going back to that whole anti-rhetoric, right? Um, that yep. um, that Paul, that sort of self-deprecating um, uh, sense that we get yep. from Paul at times, where he knows, uh, you know, to me it sounds like he knows all too well what he's talking about, but he's saying he's saying that he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's 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 funny to me that um, to hear that, uh, especially. You know, for me, that whole idea of um, something that's secret and hidden, yeah. um, and yet Paul knows. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, how do how do how then does how then do we help help me, the Hebrew Bible person, navigate what that <laughs> what that entails? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think here, I mean, one of the themes potentially in this passage is to look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's, it's um, 
you know, for Paul, all of this gets revealed through the spirit and he actually refers to the spirit quite a lot in this section of the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, he kind of doubles down towards the end for people who treat the whole chapter. He, he basically says if you aren't spiritual, if you aren't in tune with the spirit, you won't get it which is its own strange kind of apologetic, right? It's a bit like saying, well, if you're spiritual, you'll get it. And if you're not getting it, it's because you're not spiritual. It's like a circular (laughs) argument, not very helpful. Um, um, But I think for Paul, we've got to see this in this kind of almost competitive juxtaposition of human wisdom or worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom as something that we can only know in a different kind of way. The, the hidden secret can be problematic, right? I mean, again, yeah. it, it seems like it might make some of us a bit nervous. This language right. of secret knowledge feels mm. a bit like a special club. Um, yeah. And it could be that Paul is actually appealing to them. This is flattering them. Like if you're on board with me, you're also in the group who has the secret right. hidden knowledge, right? So we've got to read Paul's rhetoric with a little bit of scepticism ourselves in terms of what he's trying to do here. Mm. Mm. Um and I, I feel I feel torn. I mean, I think First Corinthians is a beautiful letter, and there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, yeah. But I also get nervous about Paul's rhetoric because at the end, he's basically saying we're the ones who know the mind of mind of Christ. Mm. And in the Christian tradition, we know there are Christians who who, whether intentionally or not, effectively imitate this type of language. Like we're right. the ones who know. Like I've just read it in the Bible or I've, you know, God mm. told me this and it becomes this trump card to end any kind of conversation. Yeah, I don't think Paul means it in that way, but I think for me the key question is what does it mean to be part of the spiritual community mm. where crucified Christ is at the centre? Yeah. yeah. And what do we then value in one another, like the weakness, the fearful? Yeah. I don't know how that sits alongside Isaiah and Christian mm. life generally. I, I mean, yeah. I, I see, I see a connection there. I mean, you know, with, with the whole fasting, right? The, the mm. rituals um, is it, sort of like a, a a sort of exclusive club, right? You know, we're the ones who who are fasting. We're the ones who observe these rituals. Um, you know, and, and when we when we think about um, the Sabbath, this is something that makes the, the you know the Jewish people stand apart from all the other. Um, nations is their observance of, um, mm. you know, the, the Sabbath. So, in a way, um, we can see the connections there of being in this exclusive club. But it all comes down to what is what is our agenda? What is what makes us tick? Um, and for, for um, Isaiah, obviously, it's the right attitude um, and being on, um, you know sort of articulating a, a concern for the um, for the for the, for the marginalized and mm. victimized and um, in the same sense we can look at first Corinthians as Paul um, reminding them that you know in in our uh, our, our, our attempts to acquire the, this wisdom this godly wisdom um, you know we, we need to be spiritual um, we need to engage in the behavior that reflects um, yeah. you know that sort of righteous behaviour. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that word righteous as well. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a tricky word. Exactly. Yep. But, I, but I think if we can associate righteousness with justice, um, yep. then, you know, that would make 
a little bit less uh, problematic. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I mean, we'll see as we keep going in First Corinthians and in other of Paul's letters, this central image of Christ crucified. Yes. Um, reconfigures all of his ethics, right? It's about then we're attentive to the vulnerable. Mm. Um, we rethink power. We, we we rethink what worldly wisdom looks like, you know, um, mm. because we have a Messiah that's been crucified. So, yes. um, yeah, lots to play with there. But we probably need to move on to the gospel before we mm. run out of time. So Matthew 5, 13 to 20 we're continuing on the Sermon on the Mount here. So this follows on from the Beatitudes and we get these famous verses about salt and light and then um, an introduction to a much longer dialogue that Jesus has about the law. So I didn't come to abolish the law. Um, I feel like there's almost three separate sermons you could <laughs> preach. Yeah. Uh, you could pick any one of these as a metaphor or, uh, or a symbol to play with. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but let's start with salt. And jump in, Brian, when you're, I mean, salt as a baker, I think you could play with this image a lot, right? Mm. Like, Mm. you know, salt can dominate in a problematic way. Uh, Salt can enhance flavours. So, like, if you've never had chocolate chip cookies with a sprinkle of sea salt on top, you haven't lived. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, like, even on something sweet, salt can be this wonderful thing that kind of enhances the other. Um, But the main thing I'd say is that, you know, in verse 13, Jesus, this is a declarative statement. It isn't try and be salt. It's you are salt. salt. So there's something about identity here Mm -hmm. um, as God's people. Um, And we could say the same about light. You are light. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this is drawing on a whole Hebrew Bible thing of, you know, being a light to the nations. What comes to mind for you, Brian, here? Yeah, it's... I mean, the salt imagery um, immediately when uh, when when I start thinking about salt, you, you know, you're reminded of Lot's wife. Yes. Um, and while while that story, we, we we've you know, common readings of that story have tended to uh, vilify Lot's wife um, and depict her as um, you know evil. I don't know or Doing the wrong thing, I guess, um, yep. in not following the the, the angels' um, instructions. Um, but you know, when we read through that story, um, we, we understand that um, there was a genuine care um, in, Lot, in, the, in Lot's wife. Yeah. Um, so it hurts. We're turning into a pillar of salt. Therefore, when we, we think about that, we, we can try and make connections between salt and um, you know being the person that holds um, you know that family down and mm. um and and being the that motherly figure uh, the concern the love the care um yeah. and when we, when we think about all those different um ideas and notions um you know it sort of makes sense uh when 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 we're reflecting on what salt does um as you were yeah. saying you know um the ability to to give flavor the ability to um to to sort of um Put food in the you know, uh, yeah, preserved it, food, right? Well, yes. I mean, in a pre-refrigeration world, pre-refrigeration, yeah, yeah exactly. salt, salt is an essential preservative, right? So it's yeah. ne- necessary for life. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so there's lots one can play with there. Mm. Um, so you could probably do a whole sermon on salt. You could probably do a whole sermon on light. Sermon on light, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, again, light, you know, too much light, a torch in your face is not welcome, but um, light can illuminate the hidden things. You know, That's you could right. play with that image. The thing I'd point out there in the text that I think is really important is um, this it's the light of the world, and in Greek, this of the world could also be for the world. So it's mm. it's the light for the cosmos. So again, maybe links back to that Isaiah stuff. This is not something for ourselves; it's something for others. Right. Um, and you know, again, you know, let your light shine before others, so people see your good works. So it's explicitly associated this teaching mm. with doing good works, which is a catch-all for doing justice, right? Doing yeah, yeah. Um, charitable things, etc., um, and this is associated with glory. So I see a lot of resonances here with the Isaiah passage. Yeah, I with, do. Yeah, um, we should talk about Torah and law as well. Where you know, if people want to touch on the end of this, um, because I worry that these sorts of passages in Matthew, where Jesus talks about the law, it's very easy to be a bit anti-Semitic without meaning to be in right. painting Jews as legalistic and obsessed with the law and Jesus wasn't. Mm. Um, how, how can we think about Torah or law? What, what's, when Jesus says, you know, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, what's he talking about, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's, that, that is a good point um, because when we think about the Torah, uh, we can easily, I mean, in the, the common translation is law and, and all the nuances of law um, are sort of carried over into the conversation when we're speaking of Torah. Um, mm. But literally, uh, you know, if, if someone does a, you know, a basic uh, Hebrew study of, uh, of the word, um, it, it means teaching. Um, yes. And so when we think about Torah as teaching, um, we're, we're looking at, we're, we're not looking at something that's just, that's set in stone. We're looking at something yeah. that's that's able to be manipulated and 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 sort of um, changed in, in, in yeah. a way to fit a context, to fit um, a situation, um, to yep. fit Engaged um, an with, audience, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and it gives space and room for interaction and learning and of each other, bouncing ideas off one another. That that type of um, space. So if we think about Torah in that meaning. Then it makes sense yep. when Jesus says he's not he's not here to you know to 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 sort of abolish cause it and up and up yeah and abolish it but yep. it's to to give that space back that's been taken yep. away right now the the, the yep. space where we learn um, we engage um, and and reflect um, so yeah I, I think that um, what Jesus is is doing is sort of a decolonial act um, trying to decolonize the, the mindset of mm. um, of people who have um, sort of become a little bit more legalistic in their in in their sort of attendance to the law, as opposed to a space where God's love is supposed to be at the forefront. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and that makes so much sense of the context. I mean, we'll talk about this more next time. But Jesus goes on to then, you know, cite certain parts of the law and actually mm. almost increase the ethical 
you know, the, mm. the famous bits coming up about, you know, don't commit adultery. Well, don't even look at a woman with lust. Like he's actually right, right. upping the ethical or the moral um, intent of the law um, right. because he's, yeah, he's playing with this tradition that has its own interpretation and people are always discussing it. And so he's very rabbinic kind of Jesus here in a way, discussing yeah. the teachings of the scriptures with people. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. And again, a link with Isaiah, I think. I mean, this passage ends with, you know, your righteousness must exceed that of the mm. scribes and Pharisees to That's enter right. the kingdom of heaven. So, again, it's about not just doing the right thing but an inner attitude, I think. Like, yeah. yeah, especially uh, an attitude of righteousness as opposed to hypocrisy, right? Um, yeah. To make sure that, you know, what, what you're doing has that ultimate concern um, for the oppressed and marginalized, uh, which a lot of um, what Jesus' uh, ministry is about. So, yeah, yeah it, it certainly um, makes a, a very good conversation partner with um, Isaiah 58. Yep. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks, Brian. And thanks for Thank listening, you. everyone. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.